His good life wasn't quite as good as he or his connections had hoped. So after three years away from the racetrack, Toast of New York is back to contest the world's richest race, the Pegasus World Cup. We'll talk with his trainer. Plus, what if rules weren't really rules? They were just mere suggestions. Well, in one part of the horse racing world, that may be truer than you think. We'll have all that and more on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gate. They're in the gate. In the gate. They're in the gate. It's a head-bobbing finish. This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us on the iTunes Store and TuneIn.com. You can find us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone that you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. On August 7th, 1991, John Daly was a rookie on the Professional Golf Association Tour and had missed the cut in 11 of the 23 tournaments he'd entered. He had not qualified for and was not supposed to be playing the PGA Championship in early August, but Daly got a call the day before the tournament that one of the players, future Hall of Famer Nick Price, was pulling out because his wife had gone into labor. As you probably know, that change of plans for John Daly resulted in one of the most memorable wins in golf history. On July 29, 2015, the New York Mets desperately needed an outfielder to try to salvage any chance to make the playoffs. They were supposed to trade infielder Wilmer Flores to Milwaukee in exchange for Carlos Gomez. Flores was so sure he'd been traded that he actually started crying in the dugout as the Mets were losing 8-7 to to San Diego. But the Mets were not sure that Gomez's hip was in good condition, so they scrapped that plan. Instead, they traded star pitching prospect Michael Fulmer, as well as another minor leaguer, to Detroit for Ioannis Cespedes. While Fulmer's performed very well for Detroit... Cespedes hit eight homers in August and nine in September that year, leading the Mets to a spot in the World Series. Sometimes an unexpected change of plans can bring a startling result. We bring this up because all Shakab Racing, founded and owned by the Emir of Qatar, made a purchase in early 2015. The horse was Toast of New York, who had made quite a name for himself at the sport's top level. Toast of New York in second spot. Two lengths away as Ma. Long John hasn't got the zip today, but the Toast has from the Big Apple. Toast of New York has charged to the front of the Jamie Spencer and raced away from Asma. Giovanni Baldini much too late. Toast of New York in front and Toast of New York wins the derby handsomely. That win in the UAE Derby on dirt turned quite a few heads. Right after that race, trainer Jamie Osborne dismissed any thought of bringing the horse here to the States for the Kentucky Derby, the race won by California Chrome. Too much too soon for Toast of New York, Osborne said. But the horse did surface later that year for what was then the richest race in the United States, the $5 million Breeders' Cup Classic, 
where he made a pretty good accounting of himself. Three-eighths of a mile to go now, and Bayern is the leader. Toast of New York now coming to tackle. California Chrome sent after them on the outside. Top of the lane now in the big one, and Bayern goes for home. Toast of New York. California Chrome on the grandstand side. Bayern digs in at the rail. Toast of New York stretching him every yard of the way. California Chrome. What a memorable Breeders' Cup classic. It's a race for the ages. Bayern. Toast of New York. California Chrome. Bayern. Toast of New York. Bayern has won it. Bayern got there by a head under Martin Garcia over Toast of New York. So why do we bring up the other sports anecdotes? Well, after the Breeders' Cup Classic is when Al Shakab purchased Toast of New York. The thought was to bring him back to Cotter and eventually fill up his stud book there. Except for one thing, there weren't that many mares to fill up his stud book. Like the plan for the World Cup, the plans for Toast of New York had to change when they didn't quite materialize the way they'd been envisioned. At some point, which we'll hopefully learn about in a few moments. The thought was made to return Toast of New York, now age seven, to racing, and not just racing. How about the world's richest race, the Pegasus World Cup? If he pulls this off, it could be the greatest comeback since Grover Cleveland was elected president of the United States again in 1892 after having lost his first bid for re-election in 1888. Unlike President Cleveland, however. Trainer Jamie Osborne was in charge the entire time, before and after the retirement of Toast of New York, and Mr. Osborne didn't need to be appointed or elected. And he is here to share a few minutes with us here on In the Gate. When and how did you first get word that this horse might be put back into training? Oh God, it was well over a year ago now that we first discussed it with Al Shakab. There was a lack of business for him really in、uh, in Doha. So、uh, we kind of just came up with the idea that you know what the hell, what have we got to lose? Initially,、uh, we, you know, we all we all had to consider it carefully. But then we decided that we didn't have a lot to lose, so we'd bring him back, see how we went. Very open-minded. If he wasn't, if it wasn't going to work, no harm done.、Um, he could disappear off again. But、uh, thankfully, you know, although it's been a long old journey, he's encouraged us at every stage. Well, pardon my naivete, but why didn't they just consider standing him in another part of the world? <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe that's the next option. You know, let's see. <laughs> you know, if he comes back and he、uh, and he won a Grade One, be it in the States or in in Europe, you know, there's a proper job for him, isn't there? Now I know there's been some scattered talk amongst trainers here and there of breeding horses for part of the year and then returning them to training. It happened a little more regularly a few generations ago, at least here in the states. What do you think of the whole idea of that? Oh God, Barry, I'd have no idea. I've only ever bred children and puppies. You know,、um, <laughs> I, I wouldn't have a clue. I've never bred a horse in my life, and you'd have to ask somebody that knew more about it than I do. I know some people who have had late in life children after having one or more children at younger ages, and these people almost always say they're going to do better by the late in life children because they either have more money or more experience. Well, is there something you're going to do differently that you wish you'd done or not done the first time around? Are we talking about my, me breeding, or are we talking about Toast of New York here? 
We're talking about Toast of New York and oh, how you're training him. I thought maybe you were thinking I was about to start another family, Barry. Oh, no, no, um, no, no, nor am I, oh, trust me. Right. One teenager is enough. <laughs> I want to try four. Oh, my um, gosh. Would I do it? Look, I don't know. Listen, we, this it seems rather a long time ago that we were getting this horse ready for the Breeders' Cup Classic. You know, we are now three and a half years on, and it's something that we never, certainly we didn't expect to be doing. He, we, obviously, none of us expected him to race again, but it's sort of looking very possible that he's every bit as good as he was now, um, as he was back in 2014. And here we are, getting him ready to go on a plane, have another attack at a grade one in the States. Trainer Jamie Osborne joining us here on In the Gate. Incredibly, he'll send out the seven-year-old Toast of New York in the $16 million Pegasus World Cup at Gulfstream Park on January 27th. I read that it took him, let's say, eight months or so to be ready to go where it would normally take a horse about three months. So you started to allude to it, but what was it like resuming training with him? Um, well, he came to us in March, and at that stage, we have no time scale, you know, because for me, it was certainly going into unknown territory. And I suppose for most trainers trying to bring a horse back after three years, it's hard to know kind of how long it's going to take. Um, so, you know, nobody put me under any pressure that said he had to be ready by X date or Y date. So we just took our time and we put the building blocks in place. Uh, you know, all the foundations were laid very carefully very small steps um, at all stages, sort of being aware of the fact of the old injury and anything else that might crop up from his age and being out of training for some time. But, you know, in, it's been a steady route, but it's been a pretty trouble-free route. You know, each each stage has been relatively smooth. And, you know, as each stage progressed to the next one, it was becoming kind of more and more realistic that we could start thinking that he would make it back to a track but it's only been the last sort of couple of months that he's been showing the sort of level that we hoped he would show that would give us any thought whatsoever that we could bring him to florida for a pegasus did you think along the way all right this this can't be happening we can't get from a to b to c to d to e with it. it's not really going to happen right well, look, I mean, you never want to count your chickens. I mean, we're not there yet, you know. You know, I don't want to sound like a pessimist, but there's still time for things to go wrong. All I will say is that his work, the quality of his work, the level of his work has been every bit as good as it was prior to his Breeders' Cup Classic. And I think I, if I'm, without being too much of a dreamer, I dare imagine that it's probably been a little bit better as well. Now, naturally, he needed a dress rehearsal after all of that training before the Pegasus, and that came in early December at a mile and a quarter against three opponents on the synthetic surface at Lingfield Racecourse in England. Not the home run ahead. Toast of New York with the lead. Petit Jack is trying to get to him. In turn, is trying to finish off down the center. Toast of New York just doing enough here. He leads by a length over Petit Jack. He's trying hard inside the final furlong, but Toast of New York will make a winning comeback. Toast of New York has beaten Petit Jack. What did you make of that race? Look, it didn't tell us an awful lot about his chance of winning a Pegasus. Completely different test against lesser horses. It told us that his appetite is still there. For him, 
realistically he's he it was like a glorified race course gallop for him you know he was superior to the opposition he was a bit rusty he behaved very badly beforehand he was a bit fresh uh look it just got a bit of the gas out of him and told us that you know his his desire to want to go and race is still intact so people have criticized and said and said that you know we must be mad because we've gone from a uh, a race <laughs> like that into into a you know the race that we're going into and i understand people's view but really we weren't looking linkfield we weren't looking to see uh, you know a performance in the in the mid 120s you know we were just we were just getting him out there and getting the getting the gas out of him and oh by the way toast of new york is running in that Pegasus starting slot owned by Dean and Patty Reeves and their partners. Stakeholders mm-hmm. like the Reeves own their slots, whether or not they have a horse to run in that race. So the Reeves group is putting up the $1 million entry fee, not Al Shakab. All Al Shakab has to do is give the Reeves and their partners a percentage of the earnings from the race. Now, how can I get a deal like that? Running a horse <laughs> in a $16 million race without putting up a dime. Sounds pretty good to me. You've got to own the thing in the first place. That's not so easy finding a horse good enough to own, you know. Look, it's a, it's a, it's in many ways. Look, it's a great solution. I think it's a win-win scenario. I think for Dean and Patty Reeves and their team, they are having the excitement of of a runner in a race like this with a huge chance of an uplift. And for Al Shakab. They can share in the uplift, and they've de-risked. So, you know, I think both parties are happy about this situation. I think it's a great idea. And when there's this sort of prize money on offer, look, there's lots of ways to skin it. What does the having this horse back in your yard mean to you? Oh, it's great. Listen, it's it's it's. If nothing else, it's just it's a great break from the norm. <laughs> he was very much a part of our family, and he left. We never thought he would come back. To have him back is great. It's great for, you know, all the staff in the yard, for my team here, for my family. He was such a big part of our lives for a couple of years. So to have a second crack at this with him is something we never expected. And it's very exciting. Like I say, it's a break from the norm. He's he's allowing us to dream at the moment. And obviously, if he could come back and win a race like this, it would just be a complete fairy tale of New York for <laughs> a bit of plagiarism there. But it's just, you know, something that we didn't ever expect to be happening and we're very grateful to everybody involved that it is happening. The fuel upon which all of sports is based, the hope of glory. <laughs> and we certainly wish you the best of luck, Jamie Osborne. Thank you so much for a few minutes. My pleasure. Thank you, Brian. We're going to take a short break here on In The Gate, but when we come back, sometimes rules aren't really rules. They're just mere suggestions. And the implications? Well, there may not be any implications. That's part of the issue, and we'll have all that and more when we come back. Welcome back to the In The Gate podcast. Just before the start of Santa Anita's 83rd racing season, Tim Ritvo, Chief Operating Officer for the Stronic Group, which owns Santa Anita, amongst other tracks, revealed in an interview with the Los Angeles Times that he had conducted a survey amongst trainers to get a better sense of who the horsemen and horses actually were who were running there. One of the points Ritvo found was that only 29% of those who responded had more than 20 horses in their barn. 
With Santa Anita having trouble filling races and race cards, Ritvo proposed a number of unique incentives. One of those incentives was to write races specifically for trainers with fewer than 20 horses in their barns. An ostensible idea, in theory. But on January 7th, here was the finish of the sixth race at Santa Anita, which was restricted to horses four years and up, trained by conditioners with 20 or fewer horses in their care in California. Airfoil just in front of Overcomer, who's going with him. They kick away from Rim Ditch, Cherokee Dynasty, an individualist next, a 16th to go. It's Airfoil on the outside of Overcomer. Airfoil trying to overcome Overcomer, who keeps kicking on the inside, and Overcomer has worried Airfoil out of it. Just a couple of hours later, the owner of the second-place horse in that race, Airfoil, the owner is Jason Jocker, protested. He said that the winning trainer, Charles Treese, had more than 20 horses in his care at Los Alamitos, down the road in Cypress, California. Jocker also wrote in his protest that another trainer who had a horse in this particular race, Jesus Nunez, trains upward of 70 horses. Huh? Well, earlier that week, the racing secretary at Santa Anita, Rick Hammerly, said that the 20-horse restriction was more of a guideline than a set-in-stone restriction. I wonder how these Santa Anita officials would have regarded Tom Brady and the Deflategate situation. Well, let's get some perspective on this situation from Tom Jicka, the longtime and now semi-retired horse racing writer for the South Florida Sun Sentinel. He still contributes to the Horse Race Insider website. And we're pleased to welcome Tom Jicka for the first time here to In the Gate. Before we pull this whole situation apart, let's start with this first. What do you think of the idea of creating these unique kinds of restricted races in response to the data Tim Ritvo got from the survey he conducted? I think they work very well, at a, especially at a place like Santa Anita, where you have the Baffets and the Saddlers and, and people like that who just, you know, overwhelm the racing. They, you know, uh, th this gives the guys at the bottom a, a little chance. And, and I also think that guys who have fewer horses in their barn are more likely to run more often because, you know, they're scraping by a living. So I, I think in, in that way, it's a good thing. But right away, anything you do, someone's going to start looking for a loophole. And that's exactly what they found. And, and this thing has, you know, enough loopholes that you, you need to build a fence like on the Texas border to, to close them all. <laughs> Let's not uh, go there, please. But, you know, it, it's just what would stop a guy say say a guy like Ken Ramsey who loves to win races he doesn't care if his horses get claimed or anything else he just loves to win races so he could apply for 19 stalls at Santa Anita and just win race after race after race but the bigger problem is they didn't and the the racing question led into this conversation they didn't even bother to check if the people who entered these horses were eligible. Now, how hard is it for the racing office to look and see how many stalls they've allotted to, to a trainer before they allow them to enter these races? And and they didn't. They had three people in the race, you know, and, and another abuse. I, you know, I used Ken Ramsey as an extreme example. I can use an actual example. David Jacobson, one of the top trainers in New York, probably has about 60, 70 horses. He has a few out in California. He entered a horse in this race. That certainly it might not violate the letter of the law, but it certainly violated the spirit of the law of giving a little guys, the, you know, quote little guys, a chance to, to win some races. And, and another thing that, that 
Tim Ritvo said that, and you know, I like I know Tim well because you know he started here at Gulfstream, and and he is trying to to do things right. He says that he people would rather bet on a a field of twelve bottom level claimers than six stakes horses, and you know I guess he's got the figures to prove it. But that's not what made a race fan out of me. It really isn't, and uh, I I don't like it. But, you know, it's very hard to argue with him. I, he, the guy has performed two miracles, at, not so much at Gulfstream, but he, he created summer racing, which nobody thought was going to work. And and then he created, uh, you know, what he's done in Maryland is nothing short of miraculous. They were talking about Maryland racing going out of business. Now it's, you know, other than the majors, it's the hottest second-tier circuit in America. So what would you do in this case to fine-tune the rule, you know, keeping the spirit of it but making it more realistic and enforceable? First of all, I'd drop it to 10, which was the original. When when Tim proposed this, it was supposed to be bonds with 10 or fewer horses. Then I would go to your racing secretary's office. They know every horse is on the ground. When a guy enters a horse, just count. How many how many stalls does this guy have? He has, he has 12 stalls? Okay, he's not eligible. He has nine stalls? Okay, he's eligible. Maybe they raised it to 20 because the, there weren't enough guys with 10 or fewer stalls. So 20 is, is a... You know, you've got 20 horses. I don't know that you qualify as a small-time out, small outfit. I don't think you do in my, my, my standards. I mean, 20 horses is a lot of horses. I mean, he said that 29% of the trainers out there had 20 or more. So that means that, you know, 71% have 20 or fewer. So that still gives you quite a number of people who could enter horses in those kinds of restricted races. At least that's according to the data that he gave to the Los Angeles Times. Yeah. Well, if that's true, then I would say absolutely. But I, I think you had a qualifier in there. It was of the horsemen who responded. So we don't know if those figures are exactly accurate. If they're accurate, I say, great, then it's a great idea. I think they should do it. And I would guess that at, at you know the first, second, third races on the card, are filled by a lot of days by horsemen who have a few of, you know, the bottom level claimers are the guys who have fewer horses. You know, the Baffets of the world don't don't need to worry about things like that. And, and, you know, while I'm a fan of Baffet and Todd Pletcher and Chad Brown, I think, you know, what they've done, you know, what can you say that in their sport, they're giants. But I, I think that they're helping to kill the game. You can't give these guys 80, 90 stalls. They just don't race their horses that often. I, I was talking to Tim about this uh, not that long ago, and he said one of the problems they have every winter at Gulfstream is Todd Pletcher wins all the maiden races. And he says, we can't put together a non-winner of one because, you know, if we ran ten maiden specials, Pletcher probably won seven of them. So you got, you've got no chance to put together a non-winner of one other than and in fact, one of the things that's disappeared from, it's just quietly unnoticed and, and gone under the radar totally. There's no such thing anymore, especially among two-year-olds, as a non-winners of one other than. Two-year-olds, when they're made, they immediately go into a stakes. Part of that is there's too many stakes for two-year-olds. But you do not see a non-winners of one other than for two-year-olds, and it's getting to the point where you don't see a lot of them for three-year-olds early in the year. Because these horses, once they break their maiden, boom, they jump right into a stakes race. Tom Jicka of Horse Race Insider is with us here on In the Gate. Now, he is based in South Florida, the site of the Eclipse Awards ceremony, and most of the categories are slam dunks. But there is one category where you could make arguments either way, and that would be three-year-old female. Who do you, Mr. Jicka, think was the best three-year-old filly of 2017? Was it Abel Tasman or Elate? 
Well, Abel Tasman beat a late more than a late beat Abel Tasman, and he she beat she was ahead of him in the race that counted the Breeders' Cup distaff. So I guess you would have to go with Abel Tasman. I, I say that having bet a late in in the Breeders' Cup, and I thought that she was the, the the now horse, the one that was coming on and would eventually be better. And I'm not sure she won't be better as a four year old, but strictly on what they did as uh, for three year olds, I, I had to cast my vote for Abel Tasman. I think the more interesting, I'll give you a division. Who do you vote for in the two-year-old Colt division? Do you vote for Boltior with his three three wins, or do you vote for Good Magic because he won the Breeders' Cup Juvenile? That was one I, I, I went back and forth and back and forth on, and eventually I, I gave my vote to Boltioro because I, I just don't think you should win an Eclipse Award on the basis of one race, if that's the only race you've won in your career. For the same reason, like in the uh, Philly Sprint division, I didn't even consider Bar of Gold. I mean, that was a total throw out when it came to the eclipses for me and, and that wasn't a particularly strong, strong category either no the thing is you're not you know you're voting for two-year-old champion based on what the horse has done not what you project the horse to do as a three-year-old you can certainly make the argument that good magic who came out of the champagne where he finished second and that looks to be a very live race in trying to predict who'll make it to the kentucky derby yeah, he finished second there, came back to win the Breeders' Cup Juvenile. That probably portends a good future for him, but I agree with you. Bolt Oro had a better body of work as a two-year-old, and we'll see, obviously, how he progresses as a sophomore. Yeah, I, I don't want to make this a mutual admiration society, but I, I agree with you. You you should not uh, look to see how they're going to run as three-year-olds. The Eclipse Award is based on what they did as a two-year-old and only what they did as a two-year-old. You know, there are other ways to, to project. You want to make a future bet in the Derby, do that. But uh, I, I I totally agree that it should be based on two-year-old form. And on two-year-old form, Baltimore just did a lot more. And he also had a horrendous trip in the Breeders' Cup. You know, he was four wide in the first turn, three or four wide, uh, you know, turning for home, and, and was still running on at the end. Uh, I think Good Magic's a good horse. And you know what? The Champagne has been not, not been a productive race looking ahead to the three-year-old season. Uh, it, it's been years and years since a, a horse, you know, come out of the Champagne. Uh, it's got a terrible record. The only one that's got a worse record is the Remsen. Everyone gets excited about the Remsen every year because it's late in the season. It's a mile and an eighth. It's probably the only i think it's the only major stakes race for two-year-olds at a mile and an eighth so everyone projects wow the remsen winner the remsen winner you know and i have one one word and answer to that mohamed but i mean there have been others but it, it's just like every year people get excited about the remsen and every year they disappoint well i'm just excited talking about the kentucky derby it's never too early to talk about the kentucky derby you know so uh, you've gotten me all excited I couldn't agree more. And, and, and funny, I like a horse that came out of the Rams, and I like the horse that was second, Avery Island. I'm in their fantasy horse league, and the other night, my first round choice was who? The winner of the Remsen, Catholic Boy. But I like Catholic Boy because not only is he a, a, a superior dirt, dirt horse, he's a superior turf horse. He had a, he, I think he ran fourth in the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Turf. And again, tough trip coming on at the end. Uh, so he is a horse that can run on dirt or turf. Uh, and uh, like I said, so here I am, you know, knocking the Remsen, but I took the winner of the Remsen, my first choice in the fantasy draft. It warms my heart and the temperature outside when I can start talking about the first Saturday in May. And by the way, for those of you in South Florida, 55 degrees is not cold. When I woke up yeah, I know, this I morning, know. it was four degrees in Connecticut. It's really cold up here. 
I was I was visiting family in New York Christmas week when it was six degrees with a wind chill factor of minus three. Uh, you know, I was so cold. I said then, you know, never. I'm not coming out here for the holidays. I love you all. Why don't you come to Florida for the holidays from now on? Sounds like a great idea. Tom Jacob, thank you so much. This is not going to be the last time we do this. It's such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Uh, my pleasure. Anytime. Our thanks to Tom Jicka and to Jamie Osborne. There are few events in the racing world to rival Royal Ascot, where it's mandatory for all women to wear hats, where men are often seen wearing top hat and tails, and of the color of Her Majesty's outfit, many people chat. Of course, the lifestyle's complemented by the world's finest racehorses, who come from all four corners of the earth. And this year, for the first time, purses will exceed 7 million pounds, enormous value each race will be worth. American horses have started coming in bigger numbers lately to see what all the fuss is really about. And that gave us here at In The Gate a wonderful idea to go over there as well to check it out. So at my own expense, not using ESPN's money, I'll be there for the first day of the meet. The Queen Anne is the main event, the St. James's Palace too, and I think the Queen's color will be dark red, like a beet. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store and TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone that you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.